this week's episode, we are incredibly lucky to be joined by British photographer Jack Terry. We continue our discussions on productivity from last week, and we also talk about digital workflows, the exciting world of bookkeeping and accounts, and the power of repetition. That's right, the power of repetition. Sit back, lend us your ears, and enjoy. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Good morning. I hear, oh, sorry, that's my chair squeaking. Sure, um, sure. It's the, it's the chair. <laughs> it's always the chair. Uh, how have you been? Doing all right, doing all right. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. I'm kind of having an expensive week at the moment, what with um, all the building work. Yes, you, you and me both. I'm having no building work, just an expensive week. So. <laughs> what you, it must be kit then. It must be kit. It's always kit with you. What are you doing? It is always kit with me. Annoyingly, uh, I have done a system swap away from Leica and I've moved to Sony, which is uh-huh. which is frustrating because I only did the system swap away from Fuji to Leica a few months ago. And so, how many and months before my, that I think that's my was system. it? <laughs> how many months before that was it that you swapped to Fuji? Hmm? Yeah, yeah, it was, it yeah was, I, I believe this. I believe this is how many system swaps have you done now? That's the seventh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not even. I'm not even kidding. It might seven. even be more than seven. I didn't even realise there were that many camera brands. <laughs> well, 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 it depends if you include things like Phase. I did. I bought the Phase One kit thinking it was going to be the the dog's balls, and it turns out if you know how to use it or if you if you don't shoot as quick as i do it is the dog's Mm. balls it's great but then i the autofocus on it was shocking so i sold that moved over to the fuji this is this is way after i'd done my nikon to canon to all the other swaps um but the phase is the expensive one it's the one that made me cry the most so i Mm. got rid of that moved over to fuji uh which was fine the fujis are good because i know you use fuji and the gfx system is pretty cool um but it's very big and the gfx 100 is gray would you prefer it if they did it in like a coral pink or something or... i mean i would have so been down for that that would have been that would have been ideal uh but turns out no custom colors not even black um no the the reason i did the swap from the fuji to leica is i wanted to homogenize if that's the word my stills and uh motion kit all into one and so when leica announced the sl2 i thought here is a camera that shoots 10-bit internal with cool lenses and is a high megapixel body and does 4k 60 internal with no crop 10 yeah right so that's that's the noise i made because i was pretty i was pretty chuffed you were like mic drop i found it exactly it was like boom great done uh and then i bought it and turns out all of these things that camera manufacturers promise you, they're not quite cut. They, they don't quite make the cut in professional <laughs> use. Um, so I shot some test films with it, and it turns out I, because there's no current way, you know, we're recording this early August or mid-August, actually late August, because there's mm-hmm. no way of... Uh, the manual focus on the Leica, for example, is a speed-based system. Rather, than, so if you ramp the lens quickly, it'll rack through the focus faster. So it's yeah. not it's because it's fly-by-wire. It's not um, direct attached, but also it doesn't mimic direct attached. So if you're trying to put a focus gear on the lens, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, these Leica lenses have got a lovely look, lovely color rendition. But actually, if you try and focus them, I was having to pull rapidly and then slow down and then really slow down to try and get precise focus. Whereas mm. actually, that's a nightmare when you're trying to shoot a short film and stuff. Um, yeah. And then there was some aliasing because the lenses are so sharp. Uh, and then there's no AA filter. And they're also big issue. Turns out, you know, I, I love creating software workarounds and workflow things. There was no real way of getting it to tether into Capture One in a way that you could use it professionally on a shoot. So I I had tethered it into Capture One and created a workaround in Keyboard Maestro that would then every time an image landed via the image transfer like a shuttle software, it sorry, this is so boring. Anyone who's listening has got this far. Thanks. Just bear with me. Um I had created this software that would sense an image had landed in the folder. It would then activate capture one it would move the cursor left one copy the settings move it right two and then oh that by the, yeah right so now you're starting to realize like actually using this the levels of, of nerd <laughs> mate the, but but also the level of hassle because if you you know in practice in theory it's cool and it works because you know when we're testing in our you know offices and stuff on studios we tend to just watch a shoot come through uniformly so yeah. we're just the next shot will be the next shot. Whereas yeah. as soon as you put a client into the mix, they go, oh, that shot about six back. Yeah. And you go, all right, cool. So then I would move six back, forget to then move the cursor to the end image. So it would then start copying and pasting the oh. settings onto images that were already been ingested. And then the new images wouldn't have the settings applied. And long story short, had a couple of shoots. It was a nightmare. I wasn't happy with it. Got rid of it. So now I've moved to Sony. So it's been expensive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you've got like, um, I imagine the camera shop that you use see you coming and <laughs> just clear the decks. Funnily enough, they, they really do. There's a little bit of red carpet they throw out on the floor and they're like, it's going to be good. Tom, <laughs> Tom's coming. I wonder how pissed off he is with the last thing we sold him. <laughs> Actually, big, big shout out to your local camera store, Martin at London Camera Guildford. He's he's always looked after me. He's been very good. So, yeah, I mean, it does um, make a big difference having a relationship with um, an actual store rather than a website, doesn't it? In that in that oh, degree, exactly, when it comes yeah. to cameras. Yeah, I've got I've got I've got three really that I use. I use the business team at Wex. Hello, guys. I use. I mean, they're not listening, <laughs> but I, I I also use the guys for all my motion stuff. I tend to get my motion stuff from uh, the lovely chaps at CVP. Yeah, um, and I've been using them for years. They're super reliable, great, very competitive, just nice, and they know their stuff as well. If you ring and just want to chat about and get some advice, they'll either go, "Yeah, no worries, I've got I've got time to do it," or they'll just say, "Come down to the showroom, and we'll we'll run you through it." Um, mm. but, and then my local camera guy, Martin, is is great. So, um, you know, between those three. I've kind of got all bases covered. Oh, and also I should probably give a shout out to AJ's as well down in Somerset because um, I made an order with them today and I'm staring at an email. But they are lovely, yeah. lovely guys. They seem, I've used them quite a bit for pro photo kit in the past. They seem pretty good. Yeah, they're great. And and Andrew um, and Hannah who who work there, they're, they're lovely as well. So, you know, I, I make a point of dealing with nice people. Support so, your local camera store. Absolutely. absolutely. Takeaway. So are there, you know, there's always going to be some things that a local camera store can't get hold of or can't do, or they can't get hold of quick enough. Yeah. Um, but most of the time you'll find that they're, they're pretty good. 
Yeah, indeed. I mean, it does make a big difference as well in terms of warranties and stuff like that. I I use the London Camera Exchange on the Strand in London quite mm-hmm. a bit. Tiny store, like main footfall probably in there is old hobbyists and tourists and the odd kind of Fleet Street snapper maybe, I don't know. But um, they've always been really good to me and honoured um, returns and warranties in a way that if you'd bought it online, would have been a bit of a faff to sort out you know i had a problem recently with my food one of my fujis uh, that had an hdmi port that had been doshed and um, needed to be doshed. repaired and <laughs> it's a mixture of dinged and boshed um <laughs> it's a polite way of saying it was a bit fucked and <laughs> basically they um yeah they sent it back and got it repaired and um you know it was under a two-year warranty that they had so I think it is worth kind of using a, a camera store in those situations just for peace of mind if, if anything goes wrong with your kit. They also mm. do a part exchange, which a lot of um, people use um, you know, I, when you're I upgrading would, your kit. I wouldn't know about part exchange. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have any experience of it. We won't, we won't go into that then. We won't go into that. It's miserable, man. <laughs> Honestly, it's, I can't even begin to tell you the, the past six months. Well, actually, when I when I initially did the Leica stuff, because Leica is renowned for being cheap, mm. um, and I yeah. and I dropped. I've that. heard that. Yeah, I I had a I had a baby in December. Well, my wife had a baby in December, and then um, I was there for the ride. And um, then January came along. I wasn't really sleeping well, and I thought mm. that's going to be the good. That's going to be the good thing. And then a global pandemic hit. <laughs> imagine imagine all your work vanishing and then suddenly going hmm? yes no i did just spend a lot of money on likers no i'm <laughs> no i'm not happy yes no i do feel like an idiot yeah <laughs> so oh dear what i will say with this whole situation it's obviously mm. now, I'm a, now i'm a sony shooter and all my problems have kind of gone away i'm very happy uh and actually there it's quite an amazing it's quite an amazing system really i'm 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 very pleased. But what I will say about Leica is the guys here, so uh, Robin, Yumi, and Stefan at Leica in in Germany and in the UK, they could not have done more to try and make everything work, try and make me happy and whatnot. So I've, I feel like I've kind of hated on it a little bit, but actually as far as the service goes, you know, that's that's it was cool they were they were they yeah. were they couldn't have done more really yeah but um but yes it still was a colossal waste of money <laughs> <laughs> so so what else is going on in your world at the moment uh what other than crying myself to sleep at night because i wasted a load of money um <laughs> not much actually greg <laughs> no um i i've had the re- the realization after having a couple of chats with some other guys that maybe my mission to kind of get my kit as minimal as possible took it to the extreme where it was too minimal so i've now had to go away from two cases turning up with your um fisher price camera i was just turning (laughs) turning up with my iphone what no you don't need lights it's fine but um yeah no so now i'm kind of i've now got some spare space in the kit bag Uh, and if anyone anyone's listening who hasn't watched greg's kit walkthrough uh, on his lighting bag, for example, it's on YouTube. It's very interesting. It's a Challenge very da- you to get to the end. Yeah, yeah, right. But there's a very dashing chap who's presenting it. Presenting. 
Um, so yeah, no, go watch it. It's really interesting. Uh, but it kind of made me think that maybe I should have some slightly more useful stuff in my bag. So oh, really, you know, I Good. well, I I had taken I had taken a lot of what, stuff my bits out of, of my bits of tin foil and sticky back plastic and my yeah, MacGyver the, kit. <laughs> yeah, the, Mag- the more the MacGyver kit, but yeah, no, I just realised that I'd kind of taken out things like my super clamps and stuff. Whereas actually, mm. you know, kind of thinking back, they would have been quite useful on certain things. And I've ordered like some carabiners yeah. and I've ordered some reusable zip ties and like just bits and pieces that could save a shoot or save me a bit of hassle. Grip's I- always one of the most kind of, in terms of weight, um, can quickly add up. But when you're mm. doing, um, especially when you're doing editorial jobs, you know, saves you having to hire that stuff in, then mm. um, it can make a big difference having it. And, you know, it basically makes the difference between you being able to sort out a lighting issue or, or, um, or not sort out the lighting issue is normally comes down to not what lights you've got in your bag, but what ways of modifying the light that you do have. And that is is fundamentally grip flags or material of some sort. Um, yeah, things like that. It's it's interesting you say that. So when I uh, was talking about weight, obviously I'm I'm on a mission to kind of cut all my weight down, both physically and equipment wise. Um, but um, uh, for me, the super clamps are heavy. They are they are heavy, and for me, I was looking into um, Matthews, the msegrip.com. Those those guys do something called uh, micro grip. Which actually, yes. for the majority of stuff that we do, and especially now, like Profoto are bringing out the B10s and the B10 Pluses, which weigh a lot less, the micro grip stuff is like composite. It's not metal. It's not super heavy. You know, we're talking about, you know, 100 grams instead of 300 grams, which actually, when you've got five of them, that saves you a kilo. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the micro grip stuff is, is definitely worth a look into. And I've, I'm going to order a big set from CVP. Uh, shortly i think it's good stuff well i mean um today's show is a great one for anyone who's wants to nerd off um it's sorry (laughs) nerd off or nod off well i mean we'll we'll soon find out won't we well we get feedback (laughs) quite quite that's it if you would like um, to provide feedback, it's info at ex- exposed blah, 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 info at exposednegative.com or uh, you can follow us at xnegative on Instagram. Sorry, Greg. Yes. Please, Although if, if you have fallen asleep, you know, don't let us know. I mean, I don't think you will. Jack Terry is our guest this week. Um, he is a commercial and lifestyle photographer based um, in the UK. And he has some amazing systems in place doesn't he he's somebody we brought on because we wanted to do a episode the, the the episodes we've been doing on this kind of stuff have been going down really well and been getting really good feedback because people have been saying there's not much else like this out there um mm. and we talked to jack about his kind of workflow and the systems he uses the software he uses the equipment he uses and his kind of like mindset towards certain things and there's some real gold in there that i certainly was kind of interested to learn Mm. um so i think it's 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 so fascinating when you hear another photographer and their workflow and their way that they their way of doing things and it kind of 
um, especially now with everything that's going on and the fact that people are, have got a bit more time on their hands. It's a great opportunity and a great uh, chance to actually reassess the way that you go about your shoots and kind of reorganize certain aspects of your workflow so that when things do pick up, um, you know, you can put them into action and see how much time you save and see how much more efficient you can be. Well, when when in your career, up until when coronavirus hit, when in your career have you ever taken as far step back to look at your systems as as we have been able to in the past couple of months i personally yeah, I mean, i've never done it you know just i was having I, the time isn't it i mean i i don't think yeah. i've gone through a period in the last 15 years of being in the uk for this amount of time <laughs> this is this uh, yeah you're right i think this is the longest i've been in the uk now for since i was 20 so 15 years yeah which actually is weird. I, I, I am posting a, an image in the next couple of days to my Instagram of a, a wing out of a plane window because I never thought I'd miss it. Like, I never thought, like, I'd miss, like... People won't the- know what it is. Well, 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 it looks whoa, familiar, but I can't so, quite work it out. That's so retro and futuristic at the same time. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... Gonna it's going to a hashtag t- throwback Thursday or whatever it is. Throwback Thursday. Well, it's a Wednesday, so throwback wednesday <laughs> i thought no. you were going to tease us with a picture of you 15 years ago oh my god actually do you know what i should i might put it up on my stories i i, I well actually it's funny because this week i did a press shot i did mm. i did like a new photograph a new press shot oh sorry, I, I, sorry. yeah can you just wonder where you can yeah, but that one's not for anyone's eyes i'll send you i'll send you that one privately <laughs> we'll be putting that up in the x neg uh x negative yeah. instagram feed just keep an eye out well we might have to blur it a lot of it yeah but um <laughs> put the, little emoji uh, <laughs> <is> <laughs> you it? choose which one <laughs> um with the uh yeah i just so i did this i did this shot of me i've i've not done one in a long long time 2016 was my last time I did one. Wow. And I, yeah, what long time. And I, I'd, I'd done a couple of interviews and people were like, Look, have you got any updated press shots? And I was like, yes, I have this one of me looking quite thin and good from 2016. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they said, it's a bit out of date. And I was like, it's only only four and a half years. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Um, so I've, yeah, I've finally done a new one. It's, it's funny, isn't it, with press shots? I mean, I tend to, if you, I mean, you some I only time I ever really get asked them is for contribs like contributors' photo in the front mm-hmm. of the magazine, and um, I seem to go through phases with it where suddenly you get like two or three magazines in the space of a month or two that need a contributor's picture, and then mm. no one cares for a while. But I remember, I mean, I quite often supply them with weird ones from photo booths and wherever <laughs> because I, I find. <laughs> I never want to kind of give anything that looks too serious because I don't think that reflects me. But mm. you know, I don't know. It, we're not meant to be in front of the camera, basically. So it's yeah. always a bit weird. But uh, a few years ago, I, I got asked to contribute one and I sent them an image. And then they had an illustrator turn it into a watercolor. And honestly, they turned me into Action Man. But like 1980s action man with the eagle eyes and the full on beard, and I was like, they turned me like they made me really hench, which was which was great, but not so at they all t- realistic. They, t- they toned you down. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was it was I was ridiculed quite a lot for that. Um, why do you not have that like, set as your? Why do you not have that set as your social media image? 
well i kind of feel like i should do a before and after you know and no discredit to the illustrator whoever they were they 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 tried you know they did me a favor they definitely did me a favor so i shouldn't be complaining but i just i just remember it honestly looked like 1980s action men brilliant brilliant well please send me that privately as well (laughs) cool should we uh should we jump into this one yes um so yeah ladies and gentlemen mr jack terry that's a very loud mouse click. That's incredible. Like, come on, start the podcast, start the podcast. Anyway, so on today's episode, we are speaking to advertising and lifestyle photographer uh, Jack Terry. We actually, me and Jack went for a drink, and I think I felt like I, I had met a kindred spirit. Jack, you, you might feel different. <laughs> this makes it feel like a little bit of a uh, sort of online date that we both ended up on. it does we both swiped right or left <laughs> i've actually never used the apps because i've been married so long <laughs> so I, I, I basically just sat there for an hour nodding while you talked about software i think i i mean <laughs> I will have like talked, most, most of tom's dates <laughs> i look, i will have talked about hardware at some point <laughs> <laughs> no it was what well, was actually my last beer in a pub for probably four months or so and i didn't even have a beer i just had a lime and soda because we were both driving um but yeah no it was really nice to speak to another photographer who we kind of both had young families and both in a fairly similar point in our career so was this was there someone else there (laughs) (laughs) sorry no it was it was it was um it was great to actually just shoot the shit and realize that you know we were we were quite similar and also we both quite liked productivity and little bits of gear and Stuff like that. Mm. And we quite like lovely old English pubs. I wonder where yeah. you're going with that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this is, yeah, this week on the podcast, then we're basically, we're, we're going to be chatting to Jack about um, those subjects, productivity, efficiency, kind of workflows, some of the things he's picked up along the way, some um, good little bits of uh, knowledge and experience that he's going to share with you guys but to start with jack um could you just kind of walk us through your journey into photography yeah sure so i actually um started off my career with a degree in product design so fairly unrelated although still in the creative field i guess and then having done the degree spent a bit of time abroad i sort of realized that i couldn't imagine myself with a career behind a desk um so i by that point had kind of found a bit of an interest in photography and just started pursuing that a little bit and i'd been living over in australia for a while and came back from there um met my now wife and got together but i'd actually already booked a ski season so i went over to france and i was quite fortunate at the time to invent i um inherited a I think it was about five grand I inherited. I decided that that was going to be my little nest egg that would get me going with photography. So I bought my first little setup, went out to Morzine in France, and um, I started a little business there where I'd basically photograph people skiing and snowboarding. And that I just found I really loved meeting different people um, and just that kind of the difference that I had that people didn't really have available was being able to because I was a fairly good snowboarder, I'd sort of fly down the piece and tap, get shots of people 
actually moving rather than just stood by the bottom of the lift queue you know Mm -hmm. so it became really popular and people would just book me for like half a day at a time um and i'd have to go up to i was friends with someone who worked for a ski tour company so every sunday i'd go up to their little um welcome meeting basically and sell my business and people would generally book me once or twice that week which kind of just about gave me enough money to survive the season really Mm -hmm. um and just doing that, I found that I absolutely loved it, but I wasn't really ready for life as a ski bum. So I'd also met my wife now and moved back to London. So when I moved back to London, I signed with um, a little stock library and shot a load of sports for them in London. And it actually coincided with the 2012 Olympics. So I kind of got into that um got great access to shoot all of the olympics and paralympics and um from that just kind of i sort of worked out that i love photography but what i really didn't like about sports photography is the fact that you're so unattached from the moment it's all mm-hmm. about capturing that specific moment that isn't going to repeat which is still very similar to my work today but you're always on the sidelines and you're always at the end of a 400 mil lens and you're always kind of away from the teams of people. Um, that is what I actually realized that that was my biggest enjoyment was the kind of the backstory to it and also dealing with the people leading up to the work and sort of basically just enjoy working with and meeting different people. So from there, I kind of, I was still working a couple of days as a graphic designer and the rest of the time, I used to just shoot whatever I could. Um, so I didn't really assist. I worked in a couple of photography studios every now and then. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, just kind of slowly, it was just a long graft, really, um, to get to where I am today. It was a bit of a mix of kind of a lot of hard work, a few lucky breaks. Um Bournemouth Uni, where I went, had a really good advertising and marketing department. Uh, sorry, not department. Um, course. 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 So a lot of my friends from there had gone into big agencies in London. So that kind of got the ball rolling, really. Mm-hmm. Where would you say you are now? Like, So where, why does your work differ, obviously, now? So I kind of taken that theme of capturing a moment and sort of run with it, really. So... You always, as a photographer, get asked, I don't know if you guys get the same, is what would your dream job be? What would your dream client be? And for me, I kind of, I always really struggle to answer it because it's not really a motivator. It's more about the process for me. And Mm -hmm. you could easily be shooting something for a blue chip company or for a charity or an editorial. And as long as the process of getting to that final image is enjoyable, that's kind of what motivates me the most, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, do hate that question. I get it. I get asked it probably twice a week, and I'm yeah. like, oh god. I just say banks. It's <laughs> 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 literally when people when people speak to me now, and I don't really want to. I don't want to kind of engage. Not not. That's going to sound like really bad, but like you know, when people say to you, "Oh, you know, what is it you do?" I just go, "I'm an accountant." <laughs> And they go, and they go or, or when you're at a wedding, right? You remember weddings where we could all get together? Um, mm-hmm. I was at a wedding, you know, apologies if the guy who I was 
being rude to was, is now listening. But the guy, the guy was like, oh, you know, what is it you do? I said, I'm a photographer. He goes, oh, yeah, like weddings. And I just went, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just because I just, I just, and then, and then you told him you were working, and slowly slid away. Yeah, and I was sorry, mate. Go, okay, there's a cut, painting cut over there. No, but this, this was, this was the guy, right? Ready? I was sorry, sorry to kind of derail it. This was the guy who, when I turned to him, I said, "Oh, what do you do?" He goes, "I'm in waste management," and I went, "Oh, that sounds like a rubbish job." And he went, "Yeah, it is." <laughs> and, I, and I was like, "Oh, right, yeah, cool. Well, look, enough of this trash talk." And he went. And I was like, okay, right, fine. We've got to. I think we probably move on the conversation. Anyway, he probably gets that about as much as you get. So, uh, <laughs> what do you do? What lens is that? We're trying to make stupid rubbish puns. Yeah, right. Well, that's, a bit, that's a big camera. That's a big my, camera. My brother's got a big camera, bigger than yours. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, um, back to Jack. Sorry. So Nothing yeah, so with Jack. One of the things then you kind of started to touch on it there. When when you're working on these commercial jobs as you do nowadays, like what do you? How do you find the balance between your business and creativity in that kind of commercial sector? Yeah, sure. I guess so. That's one thing that um, is quite interesting because everyone that, well, a lot of people I talk to, especially that will kind of either want to get into the sort of field of photography or they're already sort of on the journey, expect you're going to spend your life taking photos and sadly that's just not the case is it as you guys will definitely know that the majority of your time is actually spent doing everything but taking photos mm-hmm. and i think when it comes down to taking the actual image it must be like a tiny tiny percentage of the amount of your time that you have spent um working up to that Mm-hmm. So the weighting of business to creativity, sadly, is um, fairly heavy. But it's actually something I do quite enjoy. Um, and it's at a point now where some of the jobs I'll still sort of handle bits and pieces of production, um, but largely will end up using um, production companies and freelance producers. But I do really enjoy working alongside them. Um but yeah, I think that's one thing that's always really, I don't, it seems to be missed a little bit in education in photography is just how important the business sort of vocational side of it actually is. Because mm-hmm. you could be the best talent in the country and if you don't know how to apply yourself and actually get your name out there and work with the right people and meet the right people, then it's kind of irrelevant really and unless you just want to be a hobbyist. Um and it is unfortunate you do see a lot of people like that who are brilliantly talented but just lack the skill or lack the kind of mo- – a lot of people just lack the motivation to actually adopt the business side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a real fine balance because obviously, well, that is a problem. It's also a problem to take the business side of things too seriously to the point where the creativity is stifled and you just are looking at the numbers and you are just sort of doing it purely for a sort of profiteering point of view Mm -hmm. i think to be successful in commercial photography it's just about really treading a fine line between the two and um kind of dividing your time adequately that you get to use all the right parts of your brain that give you the creative buzz but also keeps the money ticking in and kind of make sure you're on the right path for where you want to be um so yeah that's kind of 
I think it is. It, it, I think it's a step up. I think from you know, as you said, like a hobbyist to becoming a professional photography photographer. The main difference really is the ability to make it pay and make it sustainable, because to become a professional photographer, i.e., to rely on photography for your income, you can't do that without some business acumen. You just just doesn't work no so what what would you say like in your kind of journey into photography you've have been the kind of biggest lessons that you've learned and what have you kind of put in place to um make sure that your business is sustainable yeah sure so i think one of the big things that um people sort of take for granted is repetition and just how much you have to do something to be able to get good at it Mm -hmm. um and for it to sort of become second nature really so whatever the task is but if you've done it enough that you don't have to think about doing it then it allows you to take everything else to the next level um so yeah it's just a case really of keep doing something over and over again but what you really need to make sure is the things that you are repeating there's it's basically I kind of split them into tasks that you want to repeat and tasks that you have to repeat. And there's a huge amount of tasks every single day that you have to just get done mm -hmm. to be able to get on to the stuff that you want to repeat. And I don't know, a task that you want to repeat might be grading your images, whereas a task that you have to repeat might be doing your VAT return. Um, yeah. So it's just a case of trying to use we're in a time now where we are hugely fortunate to have amazing technology at our disposal and kind of automation to let those tasks that are a bit more mundane, a bit more business focused. You can kind of farm them out to a computer to a huge extent. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that I spend quite a lot of time doing is just generating a few sort of workflows that all the mundane bits where it comes to, maintaining a database or your bookkeeping or even just replying to emails just doing it in a way that is the most efficient possible and where where you're able to leaning on a bit of software so like for example with my bookkeeping i use some software um called free agent which my bookkeeper actually put me on two years ago um, and then that's linked with another bit of software called receipt bank so if ever i get a a receipt you take a photo of it on your phone that goes into your bookkeeping software that goes to your bookkeeper and that pulls out all the numbers so you don't ever have this moment that a lot of people still have where you're sitting sifting through a bag of receipts and it might take you half a day just to do your accounting of your receipts and i mean who wants to be sitting there doing that yeah um, we talked we talked about receipt bank actually last week i believe um yeah. because something i use in conjunction with my accounting software mm. um what is what other kind of things have you set up? I mean, this is these kind of uh, examples are really interesting. I think for our listeners, I certainly know that we've been getting kind of good comments when when people have been discussing practical um, solutions. Yeah, sure. to... So, I mean, there's solutions to all aspects of the business, really, aren't there? From the financial point of view, which obviously guys, you guys have sort of touched on, so we won't go too much more into that. But also um, from a more creative point of view, Capture One has a huge amount of capabilities for automating different things and whether that comes from like for example i have 
my own session set up. So a click of a button, you've got your own session, which will have the correct amount of shots in it. The renaming structures will all be preset. Mm -hmm. And um, so right from the capture of an image through to backing up an image using um, Chronosync, which a lot of people use, but again, it's a brilliant bit of software just to kind of automate the backup process. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to get him back in the office when you're actually looking to archive those images and the huge sort of issue of data safety. Um, so I use, for ages, I spent um, a long time trying to work out a really efficient way of archiving my images. And now um, I will the current year that I'm working on gets backed up to a, a server in the office. And then overnight that gets backed up to, um, uh, I use back, uh, Backblaze online. Mm-hmm. And then every year I will set that to archive the next year. And the year that it has been archiving, I'll put on a disc and keep that at home. So for all my data now, I've got one in the cloud, one in the office and one at home. Um, and again, that's just a process I used to, it's just a kind of a learning thing, really. I used to say, oh yeah, once a week I'll, I'll back up my data onto another drive and I'll take it home. And you know what it's like, you might not be in the office that week or you might have to rush out Friday afternoon and, um, it just didn't happen. So now using that backblaze, it just does it for me. Um, it's just another task that I don't have to even think about. Um, and that kind of weekly backup is just running in the background um so it's just something that you can check every couple of months rather than do once a week mm-hmm. do you keep most of your raw images that you're shooting on on jobs i mean I do, um... yeah i keep everything um i think i tend to um my average is around 100 gig a day so i'm not shooting huge amounts of stills mm. um and then video content which it's probably 50 50 stills and video at the moment. Mm-hmm. I just use little Seagate external drives for that because it just smashes through um, data. I just find the quickest, easiest way of doing that is I'll, I'll generally have three drives. One will go to the client, one will stay in the office and one will stay at home. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then that'll just be each project will be on one of those drives. And they're so cheap now. It's, it seems the quickest and easiest way to, yeah, what, are, what are those ruggeds now? What, 75 quid? Yeah. They're, they're hardly anything. No, exactly. And by the time you're paying for um, actual server storage, it just oh. comes <laughs> up. Yeah. I, I do find it somewhat depressing when you, I mean, I was been doing some work at home renovating and I had to clear out under the stairs and I have boxes of old hard drives in there yeah. that have just become redundant and they're full of images, which are backed up elsewhere but it's this idea that more electronic waste for landfill is just quite depressing oh yeah it's crazy isn't it how much um... we generate even even digital compared to like film because you think about you know uh how many negatives people would have produced back in the day it's nowhere near how much we're producing now electronically oh no no definitely not um but But i guess it's, it's one of the aspects of the job i guess as well yeah, that's it. And I think whatever industry you're in, it's really hard to kind of actually have a bit of perspective and not beat up on yourself too much because everyone's becoming more and more conscious of um, kind of issues like that. And 
yeah, I think compared to other industries, we do have a, a relatively small footprint and people are pretty conscious of um, those sort of environmental issues. Mm-hmm. I'm always looking for ways though that that kind of stuff can, I'm, I'm sure at some point, and there must be systems out there for recycling some of this stuff in terms of finding another use for it in another place and whether or not that's shipping out to somewhere where it can still be useful mm. or not, you know, because ultimately as photographers, we're always after the fastest hard drive. We're always after the fastest yeah, connection, sure. the latest mm-hmm. connection. So suddenly my um, Firewire 800 hard drive is <laughs> not much use anymore. <laughs> no, it does all have a relatively short life, I guess, doesn't it? But um, yeah. yeah, there must be some sort of, electronic recycling program i'm sure we'll put well we'll put that out to our listeners and see if anyone comes back with any suggestions yeah so when you when you are um uh kind of doing this uh you know you're you're talking about it with your backup and you're dividing between your office and your home um have you got anything further to talk about with, with regards to like dividing your days in the office um itself when you're working between creativity and admin because the thing with obviously maintaining a business and keeping it afloat is always finding that balance. Um, some people like to have a really strict uh, uh, kind of timetable. I know Tom used um, that uh, Pom- method, Pom- Pomodoro yeah. technique. Yeah, which I realised I sometimes use without knowing what it was called. <laughs> um, <laughs> but effectively, ways to manage your time because we all know that it's quite easy, especially when you're online. You yeah. suddenly get pulled off in a tangent and you find yourself researching something and then, you know, 40 minutes later, you realized you've just spent 40 minutes staring at a light modifier or something. <laughs> yeah, no, you're completely right. And I, hopefully I am actually practicing what I'm going to preach here, but I'm just as guilty as everyone else of having those moments where you kind of, you do find yourself down a rabbit hole looking at some random bit of kit or who knows just some at the moment I'm looking into potentially buying a new van to use for work and that is a brilliant use of time to look at different (laughs) versions for VW transporters is going to be the nail in the coffin of my productivity I think um, (laughs) no so what I do really try and do is divide up the tasks between your admin and creativity mm-hmm. and it could be in a day you've got to reply to a load of emails create treatment come up with some concepts for a new test project um and trying to keep your brain on one track nowadays is just impossible mm. and all the time you've got whatsapp on your computer dinging and you've got someone trying to get hold of you on the phone and it's just concentration i think nowadays is a real commodity um, and it is just impossible a lot of the time to actually get into a zone where you really are focused on that one task. Um, so I think the one way that I try and do that is by separating out the admin and the creativity sort of tasks. So you could easily spend a bit of time doing a treatment and then every now and then reply to an email and and it will generally take you longer and you'll put in less concentration to the treatment. So mm-hmm. what I would tend to do is I'll say I use um, a to-do list on my phone. Um, I actually – it used to be called Wonderlist, and I think it's just been bought by Microsoft, and I think it's just called to- Microsoft To-Do now. Mm-hmm. And that's the easiest thing I've found for – it's on my computer, it's on my phone, 
Um, I also share it with my wife. So if we've got um, household stuff that needs to get done, she can just ping something on her phone and it will come on mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really valuable for uh, just, I'll be walking home from the office and I'll think of something that I need to do tomorrow and I'll just stick it on there and it's out of your head. So what I'll do when I first get into the office in the morning is I will go through that list and I'll pull out all of the little admin jobs that I need to do and think about all of the actual bigger tasks that are going to demand a bit of brain power. And I'll separate it out. So I try and break it into chunks. So you'll have half an hour um, doing all the admin bits and then anywhere up to three hours, purely single sort of focus working on those bigger picture tasks that Mm. are either going to land you a new job or they're going to give you a really nice new bit of personal work or it might be an overhaul of your website or it could just be spending two hours doing some research into a new kind of look and feel or just things that you can actually enjoy getting lost in for a little bit um, without the distractions of the um, sort of non-essential tasks popping up all the time. So when I'm doing that, I'll generally turn my email off and put my phone on silent and stick a bit of music on um i can't really work to anything with words so i think sort of bonobo and stuff like that tends to be my go-to i'll just stick it on and just try and really get into the zone and then you can come out of that feeling like you've actually achieved something because there's nothing worse than going into the office for the day and you sort of you know you've been working for eight ten hours but you don't actually really know what you've done mm. um but if you the worst it, yeah and that's kind of working for yourself, right? You control mm-hmm. your own time, so you don't want to waste your own time. I'd rather be faffing around at home or spending time with the family than just in my office looking at social media or any other random bits and pieces online. Mm-hmm. So I think that gives that real sort of sense of satisfaction at the end of the day when you're like – and also it's a real sense of satisfaction. If you've got like 10 little admin jobs, if you do those throughout the day, it just feels like a chore – but if you can be like, bang, I smashed all the stuff that I didn't really want to be doing in half an hour, the day's yours, you know? Mm-hmm. No, amazing. Do you, do you tend to um, uh, outsource do you, much of your work in terms of do you have areas of your business that you outsource? Absolutely. My kind of thinking with that is I'll outsource anything that I don't want to do, anything that someone can do better than me, and anything that is just going to sort of drag me down. Yeah. Um, so bookkeeping is a prime example of that. I spent years doing my own bookkeeping and I was like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I'm saving loads of money, doing my bookkeeping myself. I know exactly what's going on with all my figures. And then a friend of mine was like, you need to forget about accountancy and get a bookkeeper. And then the bookkeeper will be your kind of go-to person instead of doing all the stuff yourself and all your bookkeeping. And then at the end of the year, you deal with an accountant. He was saying accountants like dealing with bookkeepers. So if you can avoid ever having to talk to an accountant, then everything will be a lot more seamless. And I was like, yeah, okay, well, I've never really had any experience with bookkeepers. So what I'm going to do is for my first tax return, at that point, I wasn't a limited company. I was just a sole trader. I wasn't set up for that. So everything was still relatively straightforward. So I just thought what I'll do I'm going to give the tax return to this bookkeeper. And as a test, I'll do the tax return myself as well Mm -hmm. and just see what happens. 
And I remember so clearly now that tax return, his version was £2,000 cheaper than mine. And I'd done no work. And I was like, that is an absolute no brainer. He's saving me money and I'm not doing a job that I don't want to do. Why would I ever do my own tax return again? Yeah. So where did you find your bookkeeper? Did you kind of go to bookkeepers or us? No, I did actually try looking at all that sort of things. And it again, it was just a, a recommendation from another photographer, someone they used that was good. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I really liked about that was um, they used this free agent software um, because before then everything was in Excel sheets and I didn't want to be doing it, let alone maintaining it. So using some actual bookkeeping software meant they maintained the software and also I could see live throughout the year roughly what my tax return was going to be. So you mm-hmm. can plan mm-hmm. for it, your cash flows a lot more easy and you don't get to a point where at the end of the year you're like oh i've got a massive tax bill you just kind of Mm. throughout the year you can see it trickling in and going up and um it's just another thing that you haven't got to think about so Mm. bookkeeping is one that i definitely don't get involved in i've got i think now my i i charge i think they charge me something like 100 pound a month and they do my vat return my tax return and my um, payroll because I'm a limited company so it's only me on the payroll but someone's got to do the payroll still you know and mm-hmm. again that's something that I would have no interest in doing so um, yeah it's great to just not have to think about it I just they ping me an email when they need something and even their invoices are set up uh, automatically to be paid so I don't even have to um, worry about paying them I just get an invoice come through I can check it and then it'll go out on a direct debit you know so it's just all of those little things that chew into your day um mm-hmm. that one a website is another thing mm-hmm. obviously it's your kind of main shop window as a photographer so as your business it is probably more important than anything i guess people being able to quickly look at your work and get a good impression for your style um mm-hmm. and i think having a highly functional fast website is absolutely essential um so again it's something that i don't really know anything about i'm not a web designer mm-hmm. why would i why would i do that um it kind of it reminds me of something someone said to me ages ago was if um i've got to try and get it right now uh, you wouldn't just design your own house you would go to an architect to design the house for you because they have expertise in designing a house and people would just take that for granted you know Whereas Greg, when it comes to yeah. <laughs> Greg how, how do you feel about that? <laughs> uh, sorry, a bit of context here, Jack. I've, I've probably done scale drawings for my current work um, by hand about six or seven times now for the builders. <laughs> um, I was just this morning chatting to them as they were putting up stud walls going no it's not going to go there it's going to go there look at the drawing so yeah <laughs> learn that the hard way carry um, on <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> but maybe that wasn't the best example but you get this kind of <laughs> school of thought basically if you know you're not so good at something and someone else is better then 100 mm-hmm. yeah you can't you don't have you can you can either spend the time kind of learning it but being frustrated I mean, I had this recently with a project that I did, um, a moving image project. You know, I can edit stuff. I'm I'm happy with editing in certain software, but do I really want to spend hours and hours kind of um, 
being demoralized by trying to learn new software or would I rather just pay someone to kind of do that and do it much better and had a colleague here in the studio who who did their own edit and would look was looking over my shoulder the other day at a project that I'd shot and got someone else to edit and kind of I, I saw them visibly shrink a little bit yeah <laughs> and about two hours later I get a message off him saying what was the name of that editor you used? <laughs> and it was that realization that you can spend the time kind of working on something yourself. And it's probably, it is probably time when you've not got much else it is worth doing because at least you get to understand the process. Mm -hmm. But there is a fine balance between doing that and between that and not creating something as good as it could be if you got someone to do it who's better than you. Mm. Yeah. I just I, think, I mean, sorry, go, go on. Go on Tom. You can, oh. you can kind of use photography as an analogy, right? If someone has a product they want to launch, they might have created a really great product and they will get a photographer to come and create some great images. Or they could just have a crack at taking their own photos. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they might be able to get some photos, but you'll look at the website and you'll be like, oh, those, you know, the color balance doesn't quite match on all the files. Or So it's always best, I think, just to, to get an expert if you want a proper job done um and yeah we would all be gutted if everyone was like oh no you don't need photographers we're just we've all got cameras now um mm. so whatever field you're you're dealing with um where possible get an expert yeah no um i no i completely agree so i actually for years did my own website at to a very high standard it was it was a very good website and then when i got in touch with my current web guy he was like actually your website's fine but it's slow and even when you can do things to a certain level there are going to be better people they're going to be people who can make it more efficient so i actually got my guy in and he managed to get my page loading time from 12 seconds down to 1.2 like and actually that makes a huge difference in the amount of people who that's the difference between someone looking at your work and not isn't it 100 mm, yeah yeah, because if you think if you've done your own website or you're using this format or Squarespace or or things, and you haven't maybe properly optimized your images or something like that, and you can do you can do these speed tests on your website, um, Pingdom do one, uh, and GT Metrics have another one. If you want to kind of see how fast your website loads all over the world, um, and then actually you know the rule of thumb is that any longer than three seconds and people will get bored and, and leave. So your, your website needs to be loading faster than three seconds. And chances are, you know, you probably need to speak to a web guy about that because, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of like witchcraft and black magic really, as far as kind of like image optimization and, and stuff like that goes. But yeah, just speak to people who can do a better job. So I kind of want to briefly dive back in, Jack, to you were talking about kind of workflows um, beforehand, and we were talking about kind of the stuff that you have in the office. How does it work for um, your workflows on set? Um, do you try and keep them simplified or what's your kind of process when you're shooting on a commercial job? Yeah, exactly. I mean, workflows in the office are one thing, right? Because if you have a workflow and your day in the office is efficient, then that's great for you and you can make good progress. And if for some days you don't have great workflows or you just sack off your workflows, there's not a huge consequence when you work for yourself. But when you're on a commercial job and you're booked on a 10 hour day and you've got 30 people looking over your shoulder, as soon as you don't have an efficient workflow and things start to lag behind, 
you either don't get the images you need to get or you start running into overtime and then you get a lot of serious questions about why things took that long. Um, so more than office time on set, you have to be the most efficient version of yourself possible mm -hmm. because as the photographer, you are the CEO, the manager, you're kind of, you are the person that anyone turns to with any questions and whether you're taking stills or directing video the buck stops at you really mm -hmm. um and everyone will have their own separate jobs whether it's lighting or catering or hair and makeup and they're the best version hopefully if you hire the right people they're the best version that you can get but at the end of the day the actual what generally dictates the flow of the day the energy of the day and um how things progress during the shoot is the photographer. And um, I think, again, it comes down to repetition. You have to have your workflows in place and they'll be different for each photographer, everyone. I can't reel off how I work and that'll work for everybody else. You have to do what you do enough times that you work out where you can catch up time and where things are going to slow you down. Mm -hmm. um, and then you just account for that, you know? So I have in my head now, a very rough it doesn't matter what we're shooting i'll have a rough timing plan in my head even whether there's a producer that's kind of putting a schedule together as well i'll kind of just know that right at that location realistically by the time everyone's loaded in all the kit and they've grabbed it at breakfast and you've had a chat to the client and you've done this and you've done that we're not going to be even thinking about starting shooting until 11 o'clock um you know and if you were shooting a personal project for example you there's a lot less pressure. There's a lot less hoops to jump through. There's a lot less stress. You might turn up at a location at nine and by 10 o'clock, you're getting shots that you, you're really happy with. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the biggest learnings for me is just patience. And um, it's kind of those checks and balances, you know, because when it is a big commercial job, if something goes a bit awry, um, it does have big implications. So it's just consistency of I'll do this, then I'll do that. And then once that's ready, then we'll move on to that. And then we'll check that with them. And you just repeat that workflow with each job. And there's nothing better than doing something regularly and doing it a lot to be able to, the workflows kind of fall into place themselves eventually because um, you can try forcing it and you can try saying like, right, we're going to have this exact schedule. And unless you've been through it a few times, you don't realize what does and what doesn't work. So, mm. um, yeah, just shooting really regularly, I, I would say is the best thing for developing workflows. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be constantly commissioned for, um, loads and loads of work. It just means that maybe you do more test shoots or, Maybe you kind of, after having a shoot that didn't go particularly well, you sit down and you really have a word of yourself and you analyse, like, why did I do that then? And if I'd actually just waited, then maybe we could have not made that error and we could have got onto that a little bit quicker. Or maybe if we prepped that or I'd got another assistant who could have been prepping that lighting, then by the time I was ready to move on, um, I wouldn't have had to move that light myself. And, mm -hmm. and you know, it's just... It just does come down to practice, really. 
Um, I think the more that you have set up in your head because you're familiar with it and the fact that it's stuff that you have repeated and you're so familiar with it that you can do your eyes shut, the more you can actually focus on the job as well and actually thinking creatively. Because mm. if, you, if you're not working efficiently and you are worrying, say, for example, you're working with assistants that you've not worked with before or that frequently, so you're having to kind of babysit or because they don't know your kit or whatever – then all of that detracts from your ability to focus your creative brain on the job at hand because you're having to kind of straddle the practical, straddle dealing with the client, straddle kind of overseeing what assistants are doing. So it becomes very difficult to kind of then be, you know, um, flexible enough to actually be bringing something new to the table that the client has hired you for yeah and i think it's the other it's a good point about using crew particularly that you know and are experienced with because i've got this brilliant rep, uh, sort of rapport with my team now and they just know my workflows and they know my kit inside out you know so they a they know all the kit that I own and they know where it goes in each bag, which is just it sounds like a really simple thing, but when you've got three bags and each bag has got forty things in it, to be able to just not have to explain to someone as, oh yeah, the battery for that head is in that pack, or like oh yeah, yeah. you need a first aid kit, yeah, it's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just seamless. It's it, again, it comes down to what we were saying earlier about hiring experts, and experts exist at every level, and there are a huge amount of experts that we're lucky to work with every time we're on set so whether that comes down to assistants or producers or um whoever really it's just about leaning on those people to help you and that is a bigger workflow as any is relying on the team around you Mm -hmm. and not trying to be this island where you do everything on set you know because i've had jobs where i don't know maybe the budget was low or for some reason you might have been abroad and you couldn't have the crew that you normally have and all of a sudden while you're trying to i don't know make sure there's a bin for the catering to go in and at the same time get the lighting set up and you're trying to talk to the client at the same time and you can't be all things to all people all the time so that's one of the um, real sort of bits of advice i would say is just be confident in the team that you're employing, you're working with, that they know you exactly as you want to be known, you know? So if that means that you have to pay an assistant for a day just to go into a studio and talk them through your kit and test some stuff, then you're probably going to come out with some images at the end of the day that will be useful. And you know that when you get onto that next big job that you're not going to have to talk them through what they're doing. Um, Mm. So, yeah, I think the other thing that is crucial is to understand that there will be problems. Mm. Um, I can't think of any job where there hasn't been a problem. And whether that comes from, I don't know, someone trips over and hurt themselves, or I had a job last week where someone picked up a barbell that we're using as a prop and knocked one of the speakers in the studio off the wall and it smashed on the floor. Um, and it's just being able to cope in a crisis, I think is really, really valuable um, when you're on set. And that is, again, a pretty 
big workflow is just being able to understand not if something is going to go wrong, but just knowing in your head, something will go wrong. How are you going to deal with it? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a kind of a, a fine line again, you've got to tread between how much you inform the agency and the client to keep them on side, but also how much you deal with those problems that doesn't scare people and doesn't panic people. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I thinking back to a job that we did at the tail end of last year, that was, um, it was one of those jobs, you know, you're going into and it's going to be stressful. There were about eight dogs on set. Um, and we were shooting in someone's garden in the middle of nowhere in a, a small shed, basically. So you just know I'm not in central London. <laughs> There's not access to kit. We were shooting in November. So the, the time was, I don't know, we we're shooting from realistically from like 11 till three or something. Mm-hmm. Um, if we were relying on daylight. So I was like, right, going into this, what's going to go wrong? Power is going to be a problem. Lighting is going to be a problem. And then getting anything to us quickly is probably going to be an issue. So how do we mitigate that? So we'd actually, they'd been using the location for a TV set up the day before and the whole day TV had been tripping their power. So I'd already planned to have our own generator on site um which really does get you out of a lot of trouble i tend to use constant light and continuous light sorry Mm -hmm. so um mainly because i shoot a lot of stills and video alongside each other nowadays and i do a lot of work with children who just kind of tend to be a bit less distracted by continuous light Mm -hmm. Um, so power is one of the big stresses for me so again that's a workflow that i've really had to develop is finding a cost effective efficient um way of powering all my lighting um so we use a little land rover with a generator on the back so i had that um coming to set so i was like right okay hopefully that's not going to be a problem um and on the day what actually was a problem is we had an 18k that was lighting up the whole side of this um shed and basically we got there in the morning and first thing we realized is the 18k won't spark so that's basically my son um and without that it very much looks like we're in a damp dingy shed rather than a nice bright location you know (laughs) if that had been me a couple of years ago you would have been like ah what's going on how did i do this i can't shoot but you've been through those problems enough that you realize we'll find a way around it so luckily you got a pretty good uh sort of rapport with the lighting hire company and spoke to them and straight away they're like okay we'll we'll get on out to you straight away so in the meantime we just managed to rejig the schedule and get on shooting some more detail type bits that didn't require like big wide um shots mm-hmm. so we could get away with using some of the other lighting that i'd kind of added on just in case to the lighting list so anyway it gets to 11 o'clock and um our light turns up so everyone's like yeah brilliant by this point we had actually kind of informed the agency and the client because they're asking questions obviously as why the schedule is completely different to what we were supposed to be shooting mm-hmm. and um light turns up bring it around out the van and this lamp literally looked like someone had dropped it out of a first floor window mm-hmm. <laughs> an 18k is probably 
I don't know. It's it's easily kind of on the floor. It's like chest high, and they weigh probably the best part of a hundred kilos. It's not mm-hmm. small light, and it literally looked like someone had just kicked it off the back of the van. <laughs> and uh, so this was kind of our was supposed to be our sort of pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. This turned up, all our problems were solved. But what actually happened was you get all the clients and agency really excited that they can now crack on with their day. And I have to break the news to them that uh, now we don't have another light still and they've got to go back. And so basically we didn't actually get our key light until two o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. Um, so did you use that lighting company again? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not since. No. Uh, what was it? What was the reasoning for the second light not being been uh, given out of a first story window? <laughs> yeah, still yeah. under sort of. It was one of those things. There was never a clear explanation of who was it for. Wow. They were very good to me, and they did comp the entire hire, which mm. is probably the least they could do, considering what the overtime charges would have been if we'd actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, had to go into overtime. Luckily, I think we ended up with one hour of overtime um, and a client that was very happy with the images. And if you can deal with a crisis like that, you come out of it rather than being the person that freaked out and then there were problems. You come out of it as the guy that, oh, well, remember that we had that shoot and there was all these problems, but we didn't actually end up paying any overtime and we didn't we didn't pay for our lighting hire. And oh yeah, the clients still love all the images and they didn't really see it as a problem because they don't yeah. know what an 18K is. They don't know why I needed one. You know, they don't care as long as they get their images. Mm-hmm. As long as you've got a plan B that you can kind of just fall into without a huge amount of faff. Yeah. Um, mm. No one other than you really knows and especially no one other than you really cares. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just basically have a plan B and potentially a plan C up your sleeve um, is another sort of workflow tip that whatever you have planned, it won't go as you've planned it. There'll be some kind of catastrophic error that mm-hmm. will generally be out of your control. Sometimes it isn't out of your control. Sometimes it's genuinely a mistake you've made. Um, but it doesn't really matter who's at fault on set when the clock's ticking and the budget's going up. You just need quick answers and quick mm-hmm. fixes. Um, so, yeah, um, I think talking more about workflows, I think when you are back in the office, it is a it's always tempting to be like right i'm going to be really efficient i'm going to come up with all these workflows that are going to save me all this time and Mm. if i do this then i won't ever have to talk to my bookkeeper again or i won't have to do all these things that um kind of you have the best intentions and you start off with these ideas of efficiency but it's very easy to kind of tie yourself up in knots and go down this rabbit hole with sort of productivity. And it's a case of being a bit honest with yourself of is what I'm doing actually going to save me time long-term is Mm -hmm. the problem I'm trying to fix big enough that I need to spend a whole day working a workflow around it. Or you know what? I don't like that task, but I'm just going to crack on with it at nine o'clock on a Monday morning and get it out of the way. Mm -hmm. Um, or you could spend half of that week being like, oh, I've got the perfect workflow. I'm never going to have to do this again. So it's kind of weighing it up is, is it something you can actually save time on or is it something that you just don't want to do? But truth be told, if you just do it quickly, it'll be behind you. 
Is there, are there elements that you, apart from your bookkeeper, which was a good example, are there other elements that you've kind of changes you've made to your business that you felt have really helped develop efficiency in your workflows? Is there software that you use that you swear by or kind of systems that you have in place now that you perhaps didn't have in place that you've gone, I'm really glad I brought that in? Yeah, definitely. There's a few things really that have um, really sort of, A, they kind of elevate how you come across to a client and B, they make your day more enjoyable and just make your life easier. Um, One of the things I've done is move all of my... um, filing for sort of business side of things and treatments and all over to Google. So whether that is um, my emails are all through Google, my file structure is all through Google. So I've got multiple computers. Um, so when you're trying to keep an iPad and uh, say three computers um, all up to date, having a, mm. a central filing system is really key that I know that if I create a treatment in the office when I go home and somebody all of a sudden wants it at nine o'clock at night, I haven't got to go back to the office. I can just look on my laptop or on my iPad, access the same files and ping it off to them. Um, that's really valuable. I also use um, that a lot for collaborating with agencies and clients, whether that's reviewing retouch or I review, I've got a document in my Google slides that basically I'll, I'll retouch an image. I'll chuck it into Google slides they can then comment on what they do and don't like, and then I'll make those changes. I'll upload the image again to the next slide. Um, so then when you go back at the end of the retouch, you may have, I don't know, like five versions of one image, and you can see the changes all the way through. So that's complete. Great idea. Complete parity between you and the agency of exactly what changes have been made. They can kind of tell that you're not ripping them off from a time point of view, mm-hmm. and it really does make life pretty simple um so that's quite a good little one um uh i'm super anal with my renaming of files i won't ever send anyone files until i've got a complete rename of those files that i'm happy with and i i do it by um date and then agency and then client and then job and then four digit counter um and i'll do that at the end of the day, before I send any low-res JPEGs or anything to the client, I'll do that because I've had it before where, um, say, a Digi has uh, renamed some files in the way they normally rename their files, and then you have pinged across a few files to an agency. Then you get home, and you're like, oh, right, now I'm going to rename my files. Once I sort all the folder structure and everything out, and then all of a sudden, the client wants for you to review an image, and it's a completely different file name. and. Mm-hmm. That could yeah. be an absolute nightmare. Um, what do you use to do that? Because I think we discussed this last week, Tom, didn't we? Kind of renaming software that you'd used or in the past yeah, renaming. I, well, I, I rename on ingestion. So when I tether into Capture One, I have it basically set up with my naming workflow to just, I have the, I have the kind of the way I do it straight away. So the files never change from, from the moment of in, ingestion. Um, yeah. But I know obviously a lot of people have have multiple. But this is a this is a brilliant example of why one flow, workflow will work for a photographer, but not someone else, and why you have to spend time really honing your own workflow. Mm-hmm. Is on a lot of shoots, I'll mix between being tethered and not being tethered, and you might have two or three cameras on the go, and if all of a sudden you just got to throw a card into the computer and have a look at those files, 
when capture brings in stuff that's not tethered it doesn't automatically rename it no so no. again you can come to the end of the day and half of your files will have your perfect workflow renamed structure and then the other half will be like ds19834 um mm. so what i do generally is everything goes into a shot folder whether it's tethered or not and then the files are all renamed by so my my capture one folder for example for today would be 2010-08-06 and then it will be um exposed negative and then it will be dash one two three four um and capture also pulls out the shop folder from that as well so it will be renamed by the name of the capture session and then it will pull in the shop folder and that'll be renamed for i don't know boy playing on beach or mm-hmm. whatever it might be and then after that it will have the actual um number structure and that's all done um when we finish each shot it'll just be a quick rename of all the files um onto the next shot do you use particular yeah. software for that or do you do that through capture that's all in in built into capture one yeah because yeah, capture you can use the recipe you can, what are they called i can't even i can't even remember i use them all the time you just basically set parameters yeah exactly. yeah, yeah. yeah yeah it's just a shortcut so you can just you just batch rename your files and it'll have the recipe that you've created mm-hmm. and yeah mine is just um so for name. the files that you the files that you're bringing in that aren't tethered because i mean i have a similar situation and, and last week we were discussing kind of various workflows and i was talking to tom about how quite often when i'm on ngo jobs i'll use photo mechanic yeah um and through previous kind of painful experiences of using photo mechanic and then uh sometimes it duplicating ingest right because it's trying to rename and all this kind of stuff um but there was a particular software i can't remember what it was i can't remember if we discussed it that was um external i'd not heard of it before but some people actually use this uh this software purely for renaming files on mass right obviously i know in finder you can do it yeah, Bridge is good for that. I just you- find that there are lots of, there's lots of options, right? But the more options you have, the more options there are for mistakes. And I mm-hmm. just find that if the file comes in and once we're done with that shot and we're ready to move on, we rename those inside of Capture, then boom, that is your yeah. file name locked in. It's never going to change. Yeah, it's the most efficient way of doing it. If you don't use Capture, yeah. there is a bit of software called a Better Finder Renamer which basically you can batch rename files, but also you can specify how the files are sorted. So it can be done by date created and it can be done by, you know, all sorts of different kind of parameters in that. But yeah, like like I say, you know, I, I use Capture, so I, I do it that way, same as you. Yeah. So so aside from the renaming, and um, are, there, are there any others that you've kind of bought in that you've have saved you a lot of pain? <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, there's kind of the actual data wrangling side of things, and then there's the actual creativity behind outputting your images, right? And that is mm-hmm. equally something that can chew up a huge amount of time. Um, it's okay if you're shooting one image for a billboard. That one image can take a huge amount of focus, and it might have like 10 reviews and retouch, and it's quite easy to actually keep track of that. But when... I tend to shoot more image library 
quantities than individual images. So you might be delivering 100 images from one day, right? And they've got to have the same look and feel across the entire set. Mm-hmm. So I have spent quite a long time in Capture developing my grade and the way that I like to process those files. And Capture is so powerful now that 90% of the work will be done in there without having to resort to Photoshop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just means once you've got a grade that you're actually happy with, you can kind of hone it on one file. And then as long as you're hopefully all your exposures are relatively the same across the board, you do similar cameras, it's quite easy just to copy those grades across multiple files. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, where possible, I will try and keep everything in capture as long as possible. Um, and then once I've got a, a grade I'm happy with and it's been signed off by the client, any other remedial work, um, if I'm retouching the files, sometimes um, I won't be, but if I'm retouching the files, I'll then export um, PSDs out of Capture. Mm-hmm. And that actually keeps the files in Capture as well, which is great. It didn't used to. It used to be a bit clunky linking them all up and things, but some updates now mean that you can I'll actually have a like the final folder of select images will be um psds that i'm working on mm-hmm. and i'll work on them out of capture in photoshop and then pull them back into capture for your final exports um yep. so you're exporting whatever format are required um, um and again that's something that could take forever but if you I've got recipes set up in Capture that will output stuff for my website, stuff that's high-res TIFFs, some mm-hmm. some things that are for my agent's website. And again, it's a click of a button and you've output 100 files rather than individually doing that. Um, yeah. So that saves a huge amount of time. Um, and yeah, in terms of delivery, once that's done, I use WeTransfer. I've got a pro account with WeTransfer. Mm-hmm. Um, if anyone from WeTransfer is listening and, you're up for a little plug, then I do think it is um, a really valuable bit of photography software, mm-hmm. whereas any creative, really, just the amount of data we're wrangling now to be able to have unlimited uploads for such a small amount of money um, is brilliant. And okay. if, if anyone from WeTransfer would like to donate money to sponsor the podcast, you know, we all use WeTransfer <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah, I'll have a free account as well, please. <laughs> oh, yeah, while, while you're at it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I think that's a great little thing. I used to have, um, I used to host web galleries online where the client would get their own link and they'd get a login and a bit kind of like, um, I guess people would review like wedding photos and stuff like that. It feels, um, and it just was a little bit clunky when you potentially you've got 10 people that need to sign off and a set of images and Mm -hmm. they might be across multiple companies from agents to clients. Um, a WeTransfer link does seem to be the most efficient, um, bit of software that everyone can access. Um, there's only certain companies I've dealt with that their servers seem to block it, but normally it's, it's pretty across the board. Or people are Uh, used to getting it as well as, you know, I'll just WeTransfer it. Yeah. People know, know what they're doing um mm-hmm. so that that's really useful and um yeah i mean that kind of covers from start to finish what i didn't um really touch on as well is while it's 
great to have people that know your kit inside out and your workflows inside out. Um, that isn't always the case. It might be that your preferred digi is booked for another job or again, mm-hmm. you might be abroad. So I've got a little document that I created that is just a real quick summary of my digi capture workflow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can just send that to someone that's going to be working for me and before they get to the shoot, they can have a quick, it's just literally one page of this is how I rename our files. Mm-hmm. This is where you'll find my session recipes. Um, just so again, I haven't got to be on set being like, click that, rename that to there. Yeah, yeah. And I just know that all the files are going to be renamed exactly as I want them. When I get back in the office, I'm not going to have to effectively do their job um, mm-hmm. because you're hiring someone good, right? And you just need to tell them your little intricacies of your workflows and then let them crack on. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. And saves so much time, hassle, takes something else off your shoulders. Ideal. Yeah. What we well, what we haven't really talked about, well, we talked a lot about workflow. What we should probably talk about is is how much time all these these workflows and all these kind of ways of doing things they all save us huge amounts of time. So hopefully we can go back to being a bit more creative. So it's you know do you, do you find obviously with with all the time saved you've got more spare time to kind of you know plan the next personal project or or kind of get out and be do something a bit more creative yeah i mean i would love to say that oh look i don't do my own bookkeeping now so i i put that time every week into creating a new personal project or (laughs) whatever but in reality it just means that when you're not coming when you're not going through all those stresses in the office you're actually more relaxed and more in the right mindset when you are doing the things that you care about you know Mm -hmm. so you might not necessarily and you probably don't end up with more time because we all find ways to fill our time, right? But it just means that you're not in a miserable frame of mind where you really want to be working on your new portfolio edit, but you know mm-hmm. you've got to spend six hours doing your bookkeeping. Well, I keep using bookkeeping as a... Um, I, yeah, I get the feeling it was a I bit... Know, everyone hates it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but sponsored by a free agent. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's plenty of other little uh, jobs that you have to do day in, day out, whether it's from hoover in the office or just all the little things that you just you're running a business right although you're a photographer it doesn't matter whether you're a photographer or you're an architect or you run a marketing company like all of these jobs have to get done and yeah if you can find a way that you spend more time doing all the stuff that you enjoy doing than the stuff that clogs up your brain mm-hmm. then you're just going to be happier doing the stuff that you want to do um, yeah. and it doesn't really matter what that is. It could be spending time with your family. It could mean that you don't work Friday afternoons, you know. Um, it all depends, again, on like the workflows have to be adaptable to people. So does what do you spend the time that you've hopefully saved on? Mm-hmm. 100%. Well, I mean, that seems like a good good place to kind of draw things to a close. But before we go, we, we tend to um, – Every week we ask our guests about their desert island photo book and their desert island camera. So what what would be your kind of desert island photo book or if you want to start with your camera? Um, let's start with photo books. I, like I was saying earlier, I never had the traditional sort of photography education. So I'm a little bit naive when it comes to the history of photography and all of the amazing photographers. And while I'm kind of slowly trying to get my head around all of the people that I should know more about than I do. Um, I 
would love to i think street photography is something that really interests me um just because it's i don't although i'm kind of pigeonholed in the lifestyle sector i don't really love the term lifestyle i prefer just the idea of capturing these sort of intimate moments and Mm -hmm. i think street photography really sums that up the best out of any field of photography so um, I was actually put onto a photographer called Tom Wood, who was introduced to me by a good friend, a little shout out to Tom Farmer, if he's listening. Um, and yeah, Tom Wood, basically, he he's an old school street photographer who was from Liverpool and he has got a book called Women's Market. Mm-hmm. And it's basically, he spent about 13 years documenting a market in Liverpool. Um, and it's a real interesting social study of just a kind of, A, the 80s and sort of really early 90s fashion is just amazing. Um, and some of the kind of hairdos of these women. And just, I think it's a bit of nostalgia for me because all of the kids in the photos are in a similar kind of clothes as when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of it does remind me of a lot of my family photos just the sort of styling and uh, the kind of look and feel it was all just mainly shot on slr with a range of kind of cheap color or black and white film whatever he could get his hands on really mm-hmm. and i think the other reason that i really like it is it comes back to what we we're saying about repetition um and you could go to a market and shoot for I don't know, six weeks or whatever, and you would end up probably with a nice little body of work. But the fact that he felt like he had to do it for 13 years, you know, it's like a real deeper understanding of finding that image that I think is kind of, there's obviously still people doing it today, but it is a bit of a a dying art. You know, people just don't have the time or the resources um, to pursue those kind of real long-term projects. And I think... I don't think he would ever really associate himself as a professional photographer. He was just known as a guy that took photos um, mm-hmm. and that was just a, a pure love of, of his. Um, so yeah, that, that's a really nice book that I like having a flick through. Um, mm-hmm. And in terms of cameras, um, I've got a little, I shoot a lot of, when my daughter Esther was born about three years ago, I bought a, a little Fuji X100 that I use day in, day out around the house and every now and then on jobs um, as my kind of get away from the lugging your SLR stuff around yeah. thing and just to kind of change it up. So it feels like mainly so it feels like my family photos are a bit different to my professional work you know mm-hmm. and that mm. has actually created a body of work which is one of the most viewed albums on my website now um so it kind of goes to show that mixing things up can actually lead to positives that and that has given me a kind of a real steer on how i approach commercial work now just mm-hmm. looking at some of the stuff that's come out of that camera but i don't know if that actually would be i've got just Purely because of the charm of it, I've got a, a little Sony, not Sony, Sony, a Canon AE1 program film mm-hmm. camera. And that literally just lives on a shelf in my house. And it sits next to the Fuji. And the Fuji, I'll pick it up 
multiple times throughout the week and just take little photos of whatever's going on. Mm-hmm. But if there's something that's really, really special, uh, it's just every now and then you just get a bit of beautiful light street come through the window in the kitchen or, you know, just kind of, if I know, like, for example, the last time I saw my uncle before he passed away, just the real kind of key moments like that, I'll just take that camera mm-hmm. and I'll only ever process the film probably once every six months. I'll just right. shoot a roll of 35 mil. Um, nothing special. It's normally just got um, either some cheap Fujifilm or maybe um, a roll of portrait if I'm really splashing out. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just a real buzz of such a kind of look back at that year you know mm-hmm. if you've only got yeah. a couple of rolls of film out of the whole year it really mm. it's just it really is exciting actually getting that film back i think this is a thing with um shooting film in general isn't it is that sense of with digital there's just so much choice that you s- maybe um stop valuing the images as much you know when you've got oh, less yeah you appreciate what you've got yeah so if you've only got 36 shots or you've got 12 shots and you're 120 yeah. you're going to look differently at the two frames that you might have taken of somebody rather yeah. than the 30 that you could have shot off on your digital camera. Mm. Yeah. And it's also... So it's the AE1 then for you, is it? It's the AE1 program. And I got really lucky actually when I bought it because they all come with a little plastic 1.8 50mm. Um, and it's only 150 quid or something for the camera and the lens. But I just kind of thought, how do I make this? If this is going to be my sort of little special camera, how do I make it a bit, um, a bit more different? And I had a look online, and I managed to get um, one of the breech mount um, FD fifty mil one point fours. I actually got it on Oxfam online. Um, so <laughs> that's a good little shout. Actually, if you are looking into buying older cameras, Oxfam online is a really good place to have a check every now and then because mm. a you're benefiting a good cause and they do have some little gems on there every now and then wow i'd, I'd never i didn't even realize that oxfam had a kind no, of neither did I. Well, that makes sense yeah i was just googling the um the lens that i knew i wanted and that was just one of the google image um results so yeah really chuffed excellent well we'll link we'll link to the um oxfam uh webpage yeah on the on the show notes if if people want to um find out more about you jack where can they go what, what can they look at for um what's your social handles etc yeah sure so if you just google jack terry um either .co.uk or .com will both come to me and then my instagram and twitter are both at jack terry photo fantastic well um you got anything else you'd like to add tom I do, I do actually. I, I do quite want to ask you if oh your Canon A1 is. Do you know what year? Do you know what year it is? Oh, here we go. Here comes the geek. No, no, no. So it's not. It's, <laughs> it's, it's nothing really geeky. It's just that there were for the LA Olympics in 1984. Yeah. Canon did a limited run of I, ones with Olympic branding, and they yeah. have the rings on and stuff, and they, they look rad. Yeah. No, I did see those when I was looking, and um, I don't think it is one of those fancy pants ones it oh. is um yeah it is one that is mechanically sound though which is the most important thing and most of them yeah. are at the moment they all seem to be i had a couple before that ended up just going in the bin because they just all glue up um but this one is literally bulletproof 
That's it. They're thirty-five years old. If you get yeah. a good, if you get a good one, lucky you. Yeah, hang on to it. Damn right. Mm. Well, listen, Jack. An absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for uh, coming on and sharing sharing so much. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, go and check out Jack's work. It's fantastic. And um, yeah, have a have a lovely day. No, no problem at all. It's obviously one of those topics where you could talk at length about any of those subjects yeah. um, for an entire day. So if there are people that have got sort of more questions, then you're more than welcome just to ping me a message. I'm quite happy to give people a kind of nudge in the right direction if there's something they've been mulling over. Um, I'm not claiming to be the oracle of photography by any means. I just kind of punch <laughs> my way through it. And uh, hopefully if I've made some mistakes, then it, someone needs a question answer and it might save you making a mistake so yeah feel free to reach out and cheers for having me on anytime excellent thanks jack appreciate it thank you so much for listening to the latest episode if you'd like to stay in touch there are a number of options for you to uh, reach out we can be emailed um at info at exposednegative.com and you can find us on the website at exposednegative.com or on instagram at xnegative we're pretty good at responding to DMs on there. And we're also on Twitter at Exposed Negative. You can find us personally on our own private accounts on Instagram. Uh, Tom is tombarnes.com and I am just Greg Fennell. Cheers. Thanks for listening.